The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. As we turn our attention to this incredibly rich text, it it really makes us ask ourselves a question. And it's a question that, that we all ask and answer whether we're really aware of it or not. And that is the question, who are you? What is your identity? That's, that's at the core of this, of this question. Who are you? Who do you see yourself as? What do you see your identity as? So many issues in life can come down to how we understand our identity, how we understand who we are. Countless issues come down to this question. As parents, I believe this is one of of our greatest tasks to, to help our children understand who it is they are, to have a a right and biblical and healthy identity um, for for who they are. The reality is, and and why this can be a, a difficult task and why this is such an important task, is that there are many factors in, in today's society, and this is not just in today's society, but this has been the case um, since, since creation, I believe. But there are many factors that are seeking to define our identity for us. And there are lots of things that our culture wants to use to define who we are. I was just thinking through a, a few just really quickly. And I thought of five um, in, a, in a hurry that I believe that the culture um, seeks to define our identity. Probably the, the, one of the, the top of the list is the issue of race. It is, it is, it is front and center in our uh, society. It's front and, and center in our, in our national conversation. And... In a lot of ways, this, this issue of, of race is, is a question of identity, of who do you define yourself as, and that, that definition, that identity should be, according to our, our culture, defined by your race. The, the, the problem that I see in that is, A, that's not biblical, and B, that divides where God wants unity. Um, but that's where the culture wants, wants to drive us to. Uh, another thing that is just front and center and is, is um, totally clear is uh, politics. Where do you land on the political spectrum? Because that is your identity, right? I mean, we even use the language, I am a Democrat. I am a Republican. I am an Independent. And so we want, the culture wants to define our identity by our, our political uh, affiliations and, and lump all of those together, right? Because all Republicans are this way and all Democrats are, are this way. That's the way uh, society wants us to, to define our identity. Another um, pretty, pretty clear one is income. 
Where do you fall in this, in this spectrum? Are you lower class? Are you middle class? Are you upper, upper class? Are you late to class? I mean, you know, you just, who knows? You, 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 we want to, to identify people, define people based on whatever socioeconomic stratus that they may fall in and then loop and group those, those uh, people together. Relationship status and sexuality is a major um, thing that, that our culture, our world wants to define us and set our identity as. I am single. I am married. Um, I, I was talking with, with Hunter this week or last week, I'm not sure, just about homosexuality and how one of our hardest um, responsibilities as believers in Jesus Christ, as, as people of the Bible, is, is to help understand that our identity is not defined by our sexuality. But culture, the world, wants to define us using these terms. Or maybe it's your, your family that, that sets your identity. Those things are important. I'm not going to say they're not important. They are important. But none of those things are as important as who God says that you are. And if, if we're going to have a right and accurate and true identity, uh, a self-realization of who we are, then what matters most is not what the world tells you. It's not what the news tells you. It's not what music tells you. It's not what a podcast tells you. It is what God tells you. Who God says that you are is the most important thing when it, un, when it comes to understanding who you truly are. Who, who you truly are. This is, this is, I believe, one of my uh, greatest tasks as a dad is to help my children understand not who they think they are, not who they feel that they are, but who God says that, that they are. Well, God, through the Apostle Peter, is revealing some important truths about who we are in this text. About what our identity is. About the way that God sees us. What is remarkable about this text and the way that the Apostle Peter, Peter through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, um, unfolds this for us is that this isn't just an individual personal identity. But what God shows us in this text is both who we are individually and who we are corporately as the people of God. Because when we're followers of Jesus Christ, when we've been joined with him in salvation, that's all, all, 1 Peter chapter 1, when all that has happened, we've become new creations, we've been born again. What God does is he takes us and he joins us together with his people. That's what God is, is doing in Jesus Christ. He's taking individuals and he's joining them together with other individuals to form the the body of Christ, the kingdom of God, the expression of God on this earth. And so what we will see as we look through 
Um, this, this text that speaks to the heart of this issue of who we are, what we will see is who we are both individually because that is important, but also who we are corporately because that is just as important. And isn't it just the providence of God that this is precisely where we are in our studies at this time in the life of our church? Because starting next week, we are going to undergo what on the surface seems like the biggest change we've ever had as a church. And it'll feel weird and it'll feel different. And it will seem like things have changed, certainly, because guess what? Things have changed. Next week, things will look differently for us. This will be a new chapter for our church. I want you to listen to me, church. We cannot find our identity in a building. That's going to be the temptation. We cannot find our identity in a building. The truth is our identity next week does not change at all. Just because where we worship changes, just because we might own the place, or at least the bank does, um, that doesn't mean that, that we have changed and that our identity has changed, and that how God sees us has changed. It might change some in the eyes of people in our community who will say, okay, you're a real church now because you have a church. But God's not in heaven going, okay, you're a real church now. How God sees us has not changed. Our identity has not changed. It doesn't have anything to do with a a physical building, our identity. Instead, it has to do with the spiritual building. And that's exactly what Peter tells us in this text. This morning, my goal and my hope is to get from verse 4 to verse 8. There's a real probability we don't get out of verse 4. But for the sake of context, let's start reading together, starting in verse 1. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in the scripture, behold... I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock. Of offense. 
They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. As Peter begins to unfold for this, these churches that he's writing to it's in modern day Turkey, as he begins to unfold who they are now individually and corporately because they've been born again to a living hope, the first and most important thing that Peter teaches us, that God shows us, and that we learn in this text about who we are is that it really isn't about us. It's about Jesus. Our identity, both individually and corporately, starts with Jesus. Who we are comes from who he is. That's what you see in this text. I believe that's the big point of this text. Peter says it this way, starting in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now remember, Peter has told us that we must have a longing that leads to growth, right? That's verses uh, 1, 2, and 3. That was our, our message last week as we looked into God's word together. That we are to have a longing that leads to growth. That, that's our responsibility, to long for pure spiritual milk. And we saw last week that that is the word of God. That we are called to have a longing for the word of God. God. And in that longing for the Word of God, God uses that longing to produce in us this um, growth. Here's the, the great reality of that, and here's why a longing for the Word of God produces a growth in our life, and that is because as we long for the Word of God, we come to the God of the Word. It's not a longing for a book like a new bestseller's out and I can't wait to get my hands on it and, and read it. Instead, as we have a longing for the Word of God, what we actually have deep inside of us is a longing for the God of the Word. It's coming to the Word of God where we interact with God Himself. That is Jesus. This is how we understand John chapter 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's John 1, 1. John goes on to say, everything that was made was made through him, was made for him. He came to his people. His people rejected him. John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. That Jesus Christ is the Word, that the Word was with God, the Word was God, and this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have now, because of that, seen His glory, John says, the glory of the one and only who comes from the Father full of grace and truth. As we long for the Word of God, what we're longing for is Jesus Himself. That's why... Verse 4 says, as you come to him. You see, there's just some meaning implied there, right? Now, Peter's not saying, therefore come to him. But he's saying, as you come to him. Because Peter understands that as we have a longing for the word, we come to the word. And as we come to the word, 
we come to Jesus. So as you come to him, now there's, there's a couple things uh, of Im- importance to see in this phrase. Uh, one is just the, the structure of, of the verbs here, that this has uh, sort of a, a meaning of a continuous activity. So as you come to him, what's, what, what this literally means is as you are coming to him, as you are constantly, regularly coming to Jesus Christ, because this should be the standard disposition of our heart and our life, right? Because we're called to have a longing for him. And if you long for the, the word of God, then you have a longing for Jesus Christ who is the word and that longing drives you consistently and regularly to Jesus. This is a continual activity as you come to him, as you are coming to him. The second thing to understand here is that this is not just um, a coming to Jesus like you would come to an event. But this is an intimate, abiding personal fellowship that we continually come near to him we continually draw near to him in his word through faith with prayer we're continually coming to Jesus Christ in an intimate abiding personal fellowship with him this is the defining mark of the Christian life a longing for Jesus Christ and a continual coming to him in a, in a personal, intimate, uh, relational way. Peter says, as you are coming to him. This is the same word um, used in, and the writer of Hebrew loves this word. He, he or, or she really, I guess, uses it in Hebrews chapter four, starting in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find great grace and our help of in our time of need you know this is this is this continual activity of drawing near in personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ to receive the help that we need in our lives Hebrews 7 25 consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them Hebrews 10, 21 and 22. And since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We're called over and over again to draw near to God. And the way consistently through God's word that we draw near to him is through Jesus Christ. He's the only way. He's the only one. He's the only mediator. There is no other way to God the Father but through Jesus Christ. And as we long for him, we consistently draw near to him. And Peter says, as you come to him. You see, this reality is, is that our identity begins with who we draw near to. Your identity begins with who it is that you draw near to. Peter says, you are drawing near to him. But this isn't just any regular old him, is it? And this just isn't just any regular old Jesus, is it? Unfortunately, today, uh, Jesus can mean a whole lot of things to a whole lot of different people. But Jesus is who Jesus 
is. Jesus isn't who we want him to be. Jesus isn't who we think him to be. Jesus is a real historic person who, who really lived. Now we understand that he's lived for all eternity um, with, with the Father, but he really at one point became flesh and dwelt among us. And he said real things and he did real things and he claimed real things and he really died and he was really buried and he really came back to life and he really ascended to God and he sits really right now at the right hand of the Father and he really asks in his spirit. Jesus is who he is. He's not who we want him to be. He is who he is and so when When Peter says, as you draw near to him, he wants to make sure that we understand who this him really is and that we understand Jesus in the context of all of eternity, especially in the context of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Did you you realize Jesus is in the Old Testament just as he's in the New Testament? These, these show us and define for us who Jesus really is. And so Peter says, as you draw near to him, and then he defines for us, describes for us who this Jesus is. And the first description, the first analogy, the first metaphor that he uses is this of a living stone. As you come to him, a living stone. Now, this is a major oxymoron right I'm not saying Jesus is an oxymoron I'm saying this this phraseology that Peter's using here it, it, it is it's crazy a living stone like a stone we know what a stone is right I mean you know what a stone is but Jesus is a living stone I've never seen a stone get up and walk around I've never seen a stone get up and talk if you have, we got some people here that would really like to talk with you. A living stone. How can a stone live? How can a stone live? You see, this is metaphor that Peter's using. And this is a major important metaphor. Because in these two words what we see is a joining of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's what this metaphor does. It joins for us an Old Testament understanding of who Jesus is and who he would be and a New Testament understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. A living stone. This metaphor of Jesus being a stone is imagery that we find in the Old Testament. There is, in this text, in 1 Peter chapter 2, an almost direct quotation of the, of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 28, verse 16. Let's read the way Peter says it. He says it in verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, right? That means that this has been said before in the Scriptures. When this, when this phrase, Scriptures, is used, um, 
not every time because there are some instances in the New Testament where the phrase scripture is intended to include the writings of the New Testament. But the majority of the time, this means the Old Testament. For it stands in scripture and then we have a quotation here. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, right? So now you see when Peter says Jesus is a living stone, what he's doing is he's calling us back to this Old Testament uh, prophecy of the Messiah. And God says through the prophet Isaiah, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. That is, I'm laying in the city of God a stone. Not just any stone. A cornerstone. Not just any cornerstone. A chosen one. Not just, not just one that's chosen, but one that's precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, Isaiah reads like this. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. See, God in his providence promised way back through the prophet Isaiah that he has laid. And I love the, the past tense that God uses in Isaiah. That I have laid a stone, a cornerstone, a chosen stone, a precious stone. He's already been laid. It's already been laid. Now, what, how do we know that? Because First Peter, we've already seen it. We're going to see it again. That, that, that God has decreed these things. He's determined these things. He's appointed these things, especially Jesus Christ and who he would be and what he would do before the foundations of the world were ever laid. That God had already chosen a precious cornerstone to be the foundation of the city of God. Now let's not get too hung up in the city of God I think the way to, to understand the, this, this phrase, Zion is the kingdom of God. Both the, the kingdom of God here on this earth and the kingdom of God that will come in the end. That in the kingdom of God, God has, in eternity past, laid a stone, a cornerstone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. This is Old Testament prophecy that there would be, there is one who is a, a cornerstone. Now, we don't, especially me, because as people I've seen over the last couple of weeks have been working on a building, I am no good at construction-y things. I'm useless. I can hand somebody a screwdriver. That's about as good as it gets. So we don't understand as, as well this, this imagery as a, as a cornerstone, and even because the way we build buildings differs. But historically, a cornerstone was a large rock that was used to bind together the walls of a structure. A cornerstone was and, and is the most important of all the stones in the structure because it was the stone 
where all the other stones rested. It was the stone that formed the sure foundation for the building. It is the stone that, that determines the, the shape and the outline of the, of the structure, the cornerstone, the most important of, of, of all. And because of that, a cornerstone was a, it was a hand-picked chosen stone. Uh, archaeology has, has uncovered cornerstones, like real live cornerstones that were used for buildings. And I, I want you to, to listen to, to this. They have uncovered some that are 69 feet in length. 69 feet in length. 12 feet tall, 13 feet wide. This is a cornerstone. This is the, the, the stone that is the most important and the most precious of all stones in the structure. And here's what God is saying. That he had promised that he had already laid this stone. He'd already laid this foundation. He had already chosen and he had already placed a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. And we understand that this cornerstone is Jesus. That it is Jesus. And that from him, the building that God is building takes its shape. It is from Jesus that everything else is built off of. It's from Jesus that the contours and the shapes of what God is doing and what God is building gets its form. And Peter says here of Jesus, not that he was just a stone, right? That's Isaiah. Behold, I've got a stone. But Peter says he's not just a stone, but he's a living stone. See, this is where Old Testament prophecy, I've got a stone, I've got a cornerstone that's coming. I've laid them. And so the, the Jewish people were understood this to be the Messiah that would usher in the kingdom of God. And so they eagerly awaited this, this stone that God had, had promised. And what Peter is saying, that stone has come. And now he's not just a stone, but he's a living stone. And he takes the Old Testament and he joins it with the New Testament. He takes Old Testament prophecy and he joins it with New Testament reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the promised one of God, isn't just a stone. He's a living stone because he is alive. Listen, everything in Christianity hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything. It is the singular event that changed everything. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the event that proved Jesus to be who Jesus said he was. Because Jesus said he was the cornerstone. Jesus said it. Jesus said he was the Son of God. Jesus said he was Messiah. Jesus said he was God in the flesh. Now, any man can say that. There have been lots of men who have said that. But there is only one who has proved that. And that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was the event, the historical event that changed 
everything. It was this event that took a bunch of cowards and turned them into world changers. But you realize his disciples were terrified. They were afraid. They were cowering. They said, forget it. We're going back to what we were doing before. It's not worth it. It didn't happen the way we thought it would happen. But a singular event changed it all. And what was it? They saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. The resurrection changes everything. It changed them. It changed history. It changes us. And it is the fact that he is alive that proves that he is the foundation that has been laid. He is the precious cornerstone. I thought about this, a living stone, a living stone. You know, lots of of religions have stones. Now, they're fashioned into the shape of something else. And they may be fashioned into the shape of of a Buddha. Or they may be fashioned into the shape of a fertility god. But all of those, you know what they are? Stones. There's no life in them. There's no power to change anything in them. They're just stones. But this stone that that God has chosen, this precious stone that, that God has laid as the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, he is no regular stone. He's a living stone. Because he is alive. Peter says that he is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Jesus was rejected by men. This phrase here, rejected, means um, to, to discard something after it's been inspected or, or tested. So you pick something up and you inspect it and you test it. And if it, you know, Cuts the mustard, you so to say, and then you you keep it. But if not, then you discard it. So what, what Peter's saying here is that that Jesus, the promised foundation for the people of God, was rejected by the people of God because they inspected him and they rejected him. You see, the, the Jews, the, the historic people of God, were expecting a Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah. But when Jesus claimed to be that Messiah, they rejected him. They concluded that he didn't measure up. And the reason why they concluded that is, is a, whole, a host of reasons, primarily because they believed that the Messiah would come and would bring about a the, the restoration of the physical kingdom of God. So they were looking for a, a Messiah that would come, would free them from, from Roman rule and occupation, and would physically, on this earth, restore Israel the way that it was, and would physically restore the throne of David, the, the, king of, the, the chosen king of Israel. That there's a Messiah coming, and that his saving of the people of God would be to restore the physical kingdom of God on this earth. And so when Jesus came and said, I am... And everything that meant, he said it a whole bunch of times, but what he meant by that is, I am the I am. I am the Messiah. I am the promised one. When he 
When he claimed those things, the Jews looked at him and said, but you're not doing the, the, the things that we expect the Messiah to do. You're not bringing about the restoration of the physical kingdom of God on this earth. What they missed was that the Messiah was not promised to do that. That was not the intention. That is not the house that God is building. But the house that God is building, the kingdom that God is establishing, is a spiritual one. It's a spiritual house. It's a spiritual kingdom. And the Messiah that would sit on a throne would be a, a spiritual throne. One day a physical one, praise God. But now a spiritual one in the presence of God's people. You know, in their minds, a Messiah would never be a meek and a humble man condemned to die on a cross. They rejected him. And even in their rejection, Jesus understood that that was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Listen to Psalm 118, 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. You see, all the way back in, in the Psalms, in the Old Testament, there's prophecy that God would send a stone. God would send a cornerstone. And that cornerstone would be rejected by the people of God. But it would be God who's the one that's doing it after all. Now, I want you to listen to what Jesus has to say in Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 33. Hear another parable. Jesus teaching in parables. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and he dug a wine press in it and he built a tower and he leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit draw near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. So you see it, this, this wealthy man buys some property builds a, a tower, lets people live in that tower in exchange for work in his wine press. And when it comes time to reap what he's deserved as the owner of the property and the owner of the, the tower where they live, instead of giving him what he rightly deserves, they kill his servant. They beat him, they stone him. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. And finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Not only have they killed the servants, now they've killed his own son. And so the Pharisees said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. 
Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, these Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus was saying. I am the cornerstone. And you are the men who are rejecting me. You've killed God's servants and you are about to kill his son. And what's God going to do? He's going to take the kingdom of God and he's going to give it to those who receive him. That's what God's going to do. And if you fall on me, if you stumble over me, if you crash over me, you will be broken into pieces. And if I fall on you in righteous judgment, you will be crushed. Jesus understood, I am the cornerstone. But when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. They knew what he was saying. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. You see, this is, this is what Peter means when he says, when you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, that, that Jesus Christ, the promised cornerstone, was rejected by the people of God. But it was their rejection that God used to bring about the real kingdom of God and a kingdom that is open to every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Their rejection brought us the kingdom of God to the world. This is Acts 4, starting in verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. And he's become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. Now, a salvation is not only for the Jew, but it is every person who believes in him that can be saved. That's what it means for him to be the cornerstone, the rock on which we stand, the sure foundation of the kingdom of God, and it is from him that our building, not a physical one, but a spiritual one, takes its shape. Now, I love this. I told you we weren't going to get out of verse 4. Let's get out of it. Let's go verse 5 just a little bit. Because you believe in him, you get his life. Look at this. As you come to him... A living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house 
to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you see this? Because Jesus is a living stone, because he's alive, his life flows to all the stones laid on him. Not only are you a stone, but you are a living stone. Because you are laid on the living stone. And you see the imagery that Peter's using here that God is building a spiritual house. This is the kingdom of God. This is the church corporately. God is building a spiritual house and Jesus is the living stone, the precious cornerstone. And us as believers, we are, because of him, we are like living stones. Because we come to him, we share in his life. And God is building us to be a spiritual house. A spiritual house. Not a physical house, but a spiritual one. You see, as a believing Jew, Peter realized that this New Testament world was different from the Old Testament world in the terms of God's presence with his people. Because in the Old Testament, God's presence resided in the tabernacle or in the temple. God's presence was defined by walls. Be they walls of the ark or walls of the holy of holies. God's presence was defined by walls, by stones. Not living stones, just regular old dead ones. That's the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, God's presence is not found in a physical temple or a physical building, but in a spiritual one, in the people of God. In the New Testament, God's presence is found among his people, wherever they may be, both individually and corporately. Here's what that means, church. That means that there's not a single stone in that new building that is precious. There's not a single stone in that new building that is alive. That the life of that place and the presence of God in that place comes when the people of God gather together. Because we are, corporately, now the dwelling place of God. That God is building a spiritual dwelling and it's in the people of God. Ephesians 2, 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Where God lives, where God resides. His household. See, this, we, we think of the house of God as the church building. It is not. It's the people. And it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being what? Cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Uh, Hebrews 3, starting in verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just 
as Moses was also faithful in all God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses and much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now you see what Peter's doing here. What Peter is saying is you have been born again to a living hope. You have been given a new life. And because of that, you come to Jesus Christ. You're continually coming to him. And we understand that. It's coming to his word. You come to his word. You're coming to him. And who you're coming to is a living stone. Old Testament promised. New Testament reality. Alive today. He is a living stone. And you are like a living stone because you're joined to him. And God is building out of you, out of me, a spiritual dwelling place for him. You see, that's who we are individually and corporately. That's the big picture. Now, we're about to get to the, a little bit, tighter down picture. So big picture, God is building for himself, establishing a kingdom on this earth, and he's doing it through people, Jew and Gentile. And he's doing it so his spirit can dwell there. And so that's who we are. We're living stones in the dwelling place of God. But we're not just that. We're some other things. We're a holy priesthood. We're a a people of his own possession. And Peter's about to just roll through these things that we are, that all come out of being in the household of of God. (laughs) But we won't get them today. Here's the, the takeaway. When we ask ourselves, who are we? The number one most important thing to understand is who God says we are. And God says, if you are in Christ Jesus, who is the living stone, you are a living stone and part of the dwelling place of God. Now that has some implications and we'll get there next week and probably the week after and the week after. This might take a little while. But this is who we are. Now more than ever, it's important that we accurately understand who it is that we are and what God is doing and how God is doing it. And we are consistent and we are clear that our foundation is found in only one person. The living stone, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. From him, all of us are being built up. Here's here's what we're going to see. From him, your identity as being blessed or cursed 
comes from him. Your response to him. There's no more important thing than what you believe about Jesus Christ because what you believe about Jesus Christ determines who you are. It determines your identity. So if you've never trusted in him in faith, may today be the day of your salvation. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.